Back in, um, it was March 11th, 1979, um, one of China's uh, newspapers, the Sichuan Daily, um, had a story about a, a young boy named Tang Yu uh, who was able to read with his ears. Now, this um, there's something called the Defense Intelligence Agency, which has since kind of been um, changed. Defense, uh, I think they call it the D-Lab or something like that now. I got to deal with the D-Lab when I was over at Fort Meade. Um, but the CIA and uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency was actually very, very um, intrigued by this for obvious reasons. And um, one of the things that, uh, that they ended up uh, researching at this point was the ability to be able to um, get a, a scene um, based on or understand the situation from a material perspective of the world and everything uh, through acoustics. You know, how is it possible to basically take letters off of a page and, you know, for the mind to be able to absorb that information? So this started a big, huge, um, you know, research um, based on, you know, in Russia it was, they're more focused on ESP and PK, but in the U.S. they're more focused on the technology behind it. What are the technological implications and can this information actually be converted to technological uses? And uh, since, you know, you've seen a, you know, they had already had infrared and uh, an ultraviolet at this point, but uh, the interest was leveraging acoustics only. Um, you know, the others were detectable. That was the problem with infrared, and that was also the problem with um, with uh, ultraviolet. Both of them were detectable, and they were more interested from an acoustical perspective. How was it possible to actually leverage this information to get a good um, understanding, a better understanding? And this could be translatable to, you know, to something like like um, all the way from, you know, Navy and sonar and uh, acoustics with that. I mean, it was a well-known fact that uh, whales can actually navigate the entire ocean, traverse an entire ocean, leveraging, you know, the, the sound the, of their voice alone. Um, and the same thing hold true, held true for um, bats and their capability to, despite the fact that they're blind, um, hence the term blind as a bat, um, they have they use something called echolocation, which is a rapid clicking of their tongues in order to basically uh, obtain um, a, a painting in their mind of the surrounding environment and everything and do it on a on a real-time basis and navigate real rapidly so it's interesting that uh, that most most animals you know lack the capability to be able to fly as uh, as deftly as a bat can whereas you know with the exception of things like a hummingbird and that kind of stuff where the eyesight's definitely um, increased but uh, this boy in particular um, had the it piqued the CIA's interest for one reason text on a page um, he indicated that while he didn't see what was written on the paper it was still translated to him visually so he saw the equivalent of the characters forming in his mind now, echolocation has been something of a phenomenon that's, um, well, it's not a phenomenon anymore. It's well known, you know, scientifically and everything, um, that humans are actually capable of doing it too. And there's been many, many documented cases of, of humans using echolocation to successfully navigate the world around them without the use of, um, you know, the typical things that actually suggest or might imply that they're otherwise uh, without vision. Um, in, in a sense, they, um, they have often 
describe their surroundings and everything. And uh, you have uh, TV shows like Daredevil, which is based on the observations from from people that uh, that actually form visual visually oriented imagery and everything based on um, various different forms of acquiring information through uh, through sound and through other mechanisms that to some degree still aren't fully quite understood. So it was interesting with the CIA in this case is this is the first time in 1979 that the um, the CIA actually looked into um, the ability for the mind to be able to translate information um, in different ways other than visually. And, you know, what piqued their interest was certainly the visual understanding, you know, of this information, the visual translation. So, um, as uh, as the investigation continued, um, what they discovered was that there was a lot of people, especially for some reason in China, that were exhibiting uh, capabilities, you know, outside normal realms and everything for being able to acquire information um, that uh, in a lot of cases were translated visually that uh, would actually, you know, come in through various different sources. For some people, some people can actually, or for instance, some people can actually take the information that they're receiving um, through their fingertips. They can quite literally read with their fingertips. Now, I'm not talking about Braille. I'm talking about a book that doesn't have a um, a physical component to it. Um, and you can't, you know, these, these are flat images and it's any book or anything like that. You know, so you cannot, uh, you know, cannot state that, you know, that it's a... A product of the book itself being produced in a particular way that's especially acute for the blind and everything. The simple fact of the matter is they they can actually visually interpret information without actually having the eyes to see the information. So this was something that the CIA was hugely interested in, you know, um, particularly being able to acquire information from a distance and everything, you know. And this this occurred, you know, in the late 19, uh, 1970s, and um, at this point uh, they ended up uh, launching this huge investigation, learning that not only was it confined, you know, the, to the Chinese re- region, but they actually started finding some evidence of it occurring in various different locations here in the U.S. as well. But for some reason, China seemed to dominate. Some of the instances of this, and um, they they didn't know why. So, anyways, um, I thought that was really interesting. You know that the whole um, that that CIA's fixation, the understanding of visual imagery and that kind of stuff, um, and in particular launching investigations of alternate methods of acquiring visual information, um, happened at this definitive date. You know, prior to then, there really wasn't any, you know, true strong investigations into alternate methods of, of, of acquiring uh, information, particularly when it came down to the mind, you know, so it didn't mean, you know, technology, um, it meant the mind's capability to acquire information. Prior to then, they just weren't as interested, um, but because of some of the remote viewing capabilities and everything, and uh, some of the stuff that they had been investigating, they went down the slippery slope and started realizing, well, there's a lot of different ways to acquire visual information. You know, the eyes isn't necessarily the only way information can, you know, is acquired and everything. So it's kind of interesting, you know, that this one pivotal story, you know, appearing in a in a newspaper and everything. Um, and uh, what really put it on the radar what wasn't necessarily the boy, but was the boy's relationship to one man in particular, which was kind of like a, what they considered an enemy, you know, of... Um, 
of the United States and everything for the progression of uh, of capitalism altogether. He was definitely a hardened communist and everything, and you could definitely tell the whole, you know, even in the 1970s, a whole red scare was was fresh and ripe in the uh, in the minds of many people over to over at the CIA. So found that intriguing. Anyways, more later. So, um, about the same time this discovery was made, um, as the uh, American authorities uh, ended up investigating it, they, they learned of, you know, the PK projects, uh, which is something called psychokinesis that was going on um, over in, uh, basically, it was over in Russia and also in um, India. And uh, India had more or less, it wasn't necessarily a program that India had, it was more or less uh, an expectation and knowledge um, of forebearers that uh, certain people could do this. And it wasn't a conspiracy or anything like that, it was just basically an accepted practice that actually was indoctrinated within our culture. And it was a similar function within uh, China, where Chinese um, more or less considered this capability and everything just a, a, a simple capability that some people had in a rare form and everything. Thing, but it wasn't anything out of the ordinary or anything like that. I mean, it was out of the ordinary, you know, but it wasn't one of those things that was um, considered a mystery or a phenomenon or something like that, like American uh, and Western people did. Now, Russia was kind of on the cusp. They didn't know um, how to handle it. They didn't themselves actually have any knowledge of this within their own culture and their own environment and everything and living right, having borders to both two countries that exhibited this capability scared the shit out of them. You know, so as a result, um, the Russian authorities were actually, particularly those that were leading the KGB at the time, and uh, since then it's uh, transformed to a different agency. Um, those agencies uh, were responsible for doing a deep dive into um, ESP, uh, electrosensory, what was it, uh, electrosensory perception, extrasensory perception, that's right, and uh, PK, which is psychokinesis. Psychokinesis is the ability to be able to move things. And as they began investigating, again, in, in, China, in, uh, in mainland China, um, they found a young girl, um, this is actually documented um, by both the um, SRI, the Stanford Research Institute, and also the CIA, having directly witnessed this. A young girl could move an object across a desk using only her mind. Another could cause a flower bud inside a sealed jar to blossom in a matter of seconds. A boy could snap tree branches. They were actually, all this testing was done on, on children. Um, could snap tree branches from a distance of several feet. Children with uh, this thing that they referred to as EHBF, and, it's, and uh, this is how Chinese authorities refer to it, it's called Extraordinary Human Body Functions. This is the uh, Chinese um, translation of, uh, of how they regarded this. Um, this. These psychokinetic capabilities, the ability to be able to manipulate matter with the mind, was something um, that they considered far more uh, common within children than than adults, even though adults still carry this capability and everything. Um, but in addition to that, um, they had, you know, they, you know, worked with uh, American authorities even way back then, you know, um, because the Chinese were actually a little bit more afraid of Russia than they were of uh, America. They were considered somewhat allies and everything, you know, because of the fear, the latent fear of uh, Russia actually trying to take over their territory and everything. So they worked um, not necessarily strongly. At that point, it was still a tenuous relationship and everything. 
but that tenuousness was there um, because both countries knew that they needed each other, particularly to defend against the uh, threat known as, the, uh, as Russia. So, um, going on um, about the young girl, another could, could cause a flower uh, bud inside a sealed jar to blossom in a matter of seconds. Um, so clearly, the uh, the PK has the capability to be able to dilate time as well. Um, a boy could snap tree branches. Children with EHBS were tested in in extreme psychokinesis experiments, and uh, they could turn the hands of watches, bend metal, break matches, and cause spontaneous combustion of flammable materials at the wave of a hand. So if you've ever seen the, the movie Firestarter and, uh, or read uh, Stephen King's translation of it, all this is absolutely based on true stories. You know, this is, don't think that these, this information isn't, uh, you know, coming to common media and everything, you know, by fluke. It's actually there detailing the real events that are actually occurring in reality and the potential threats and scares that are actually scaring the people that are actually in charge of how far this can actually be taken. You know, so movies have a tendency to exaggerate things, you know, to the point of making, you know, just showing the absolute worst possible scenario and everything. Um, and depicting that, and that's actually how they make their money, is through the dramatization of, uh, of these particular skills and functions and everything. And the same thing holds true for superheroes. You know, that's, that's why there's constant fighting, you know, by people in superhero movies, is just because, you know, the authorities um, fear the loss of power, and as a result, they're paying for movies that, uh, that demonize, you know, those that actually have the capability, these capabilities. So, it's only natural to react with fear to unknown things and everything, not knowing how those things are going to be integrated within the world. So, when it was reported that uh, several of the children were endowed with a mysterious seventh sense, whereby they can actually see through lead containers, um, at this point, that's actually what, uh, what caused Chinese authorities to become involved directly in this process, and actually what, what raised the awareness um, by American authorities of the same processes as well. So... Um, there's apparently a special research physics team um, at the Chinese Academy of Science in Beijing, and uh, at that point they ended up testing this and officially, you know, this this idea and concept that had been purported by um, these children that had these gifts and everything, and uh, it could be read with this, you know, they actually had, you know, basically as a uh, lead container. I, I say basically a lot, you know that? I gotta stop that. The kind used by military to store um, radioactive material for the lead container, uh, so it doesn't permit any radiation to actually come out. And uh, could could and the children could read what was written on a sheet of paper inside. So you know, the children literally bypassed, um, you know, in ways that are weren't were not, and still to this day aren't fully understood. Now, the effect is real, you know, and that's actually what they learned. You know, not only is the effect real, but um, while it can't be explained, it doesn't mean the observations in the science hasn't hasn't proven that it exists over and over again. It's like a hallucination, you know, to somebody that hasn't experienced a hallucination, they don't fully understand that perception from an individual perspective and everything can, can and is remarkably real. Well, the same thing holds true for this, too. Um, just because somebody hasn't seen, you know, this directly doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And in this case right here, you know, um, 
you know, these children over and over again. And this has actually gone on, you know, I mean, there's been discussions of this in basically every culture in the world. You know, people with the capability to be able to lift things with their mind and to be able to bend things with their mind and be able to manipulate matter at will. Um, the transmutation, transformation, everything has been written about in biblical texts and everything, too. You know, so from the Old Testament to the, Old, to the New Testament. So none of this is, is really rocket science or is um is something that is isn't even isn't already in common culture it's been there all along you know um they just had their first examples of it happening um that they can actually take to a scientific laboratory and literally prove what was written in these biblical texts and everything, and these religious texts from around the world. And not just religious texts, but it's basically fiction, it's it's discussed in so many different accounts and everything. So, um, this kind of scientist for both China and um, and the United States to actually, um, you know, try to understand the quote-unquote phenomena a little bit more and understand how is this happening, you know, um... And uh, I, I mean, I'll I'll talk a little bit more about it in a bit and everything. But um, I I find it funny the the premise, you know, that uh, the discovery of the mind and its capabilities and everything. Um, you know, I mean, the Western premise is that the mind is capable of anything. You know, but you get some scientists involved in it who um, believe that everything has to be proven. Well, I mean, how do you prove that the mind is capable of everything? You know, when you don't believe that it's capable of everything. You know, it's it's a catch twenty two type situation for scientists. So, in any case, I found uh, I found this little excerpt uh, interesting on PK. And to um to piggyback onto that, um one of the, th the first things that a Chinese scientist did was he tried explaining away this event through brainwave analysis of exceptional vision. Um, suggests that the children possessed a unique, still un unknown radiation uh, that these minds could produce. Now here's the thing: um, scientists, in a general sense, have have a tendency to basically materialize everything. You know, so the goal um, with science is to basically, um, basically, God, why am I saying that so much? Um, is to take that information and to translate it to something that's tangible, something they can touch, something they can feel. You know, and I mean that in a way that uh, that their measurements and their instruments can actually manipulate and that kind of stuff. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it creates technology and makes it possible for people to use this technology. You know, you have the TV as a direct result of uh, the exploration of the atomic bomb. Um, that, that's a direct correlation of everything. So, had they not, um, had they not actually made these um, bold scientific assertions and everything, you wouldn't have technology being at the state that it is right now. Um, but this uh, one one thing that um, that scientists um, repetitively make um, kind of a mistake in doing is assuming that um, the material formation of things is the absolute. So it's just basically saying that uh, while a concrete foundation um, may certainly impair somebody from uh, plowing a uh, you know, plowing a car through it. Um, just because somebody plows a car into it doesn't necessarily mean they experience the same thing that you observe. So, and, and this is what I consider really important to understand. You know, so the the act of observation from a a 
an individual's perspective, when that individual believes that the collective authority um, basically makes it so where one perspective and one perspective only is is how reality functions. Well, that's uh, that's a, a misassumption I made in the past about how reality functions. It's not necessarily the case. You know, I understand that the way I perceive the world could be remarkably different than anybody else's. Now, I accept science, you know, and its assertion of the material and everything because it actually, you know, does help build, you know, the ground that I sit on, you know, the chair that I sit on, the house that I, you know, that I actually live within. All this stuff for me is what keeps it tied together to some degree, is basically understanding the processes um, of creation uh, that actually create this outside world around me. You know, but, uh, but then again, it, the thing I had to understand over time is this, these are not absolutes. So, you know, where the mind is capable of basically doing these things, you know, through the psychokinesis and everything, one explanation it's sure, it's a waveform. You know, um, a waveform is actually conjured up that actually causes that object to, to be manipulated. Um, but uh, if you actually take a look at Doctor Who um, as an example of alternative methods and everything, oddly enough, that sonic screwdriver that doctor can use, you know, let's, let's imagine for a moment that this is actually a real depiction of a real world in an alternate reality, and somehow that sonic screwdriver can open up locks, it can reprogram computers, it can um, do basically anything that doctor asks, asks it to do. Now, so here's a question. If, it's, if it is indeed um, manipulating matter, you know, and altering, you know, putting momentum force onto that lock in order to open up that lock, how is it doing that? Well, the mind itself is leveraging the sonic screwdriver as a channel. Um, that channel is creating intention and actually creating the force, and that force is manifesting in the real world and everything. So it, it basically acts as nothing more than a conduit for thought, a displaced conduit. It doesn't mean it's an absolute device that if I was to pick up that sonic screwdriver, it would have the same effect. You know, for me, quite likely, I would pick up the sonic screwdriver and I wouldn't get anything from it because I lack the faith, the um, the experiences, you know, from that to actually make the things possible that that sonic screwdriver, um, channeled by the correct mind, are capable of achieving. So, and I think it's actually really important to, you know, to understand and look at um, these, you know, events with PK and uh, some of the things that they've done with um, the capability to be able to, you know, read with fingers, with toes, with the mind, um, you know, with with a crump, piece of crumpled paper next to the ear and being able to decipher the text without actually seeing the text that's actually on that crumpled piece of paper. The mind is experiencing a translation of reality. It, it, it's doing that at all times. Well, that's not. It's not just re receiving a translation. It's also sending something that ultimately is being translated into action by the real world. So that whole channeling of belief through a technological instrument and everything is also responsible for doing the same thing. You know, it's a device and everything that is responsible for, quite literally, you know, altering the foundation of, of the world, you know, based on the intention of the mind and everything. So, um, I, I mean, I find it interesting how a lot of scientists, you know, tend to work in the same way that I used to, which is based on absolutes. 
you know, there's one one way and one method of perceiving the, the world and everything. And, you know, there's only one explanation for how things occur. Well, there's multiple explanations, you know. Um, it's just the explanation that you choose. And in this case, you know, if it's a waveform and everything, you know, or a ray, these minds could produce rays similar to microwaves. You know, um, to me, you know, the whole idea, the explaining way of things to three fundamental forces, you know, to waves, to um, information that's produced in centon waves into particles, you know, the three, you know, the concept of the three is, it's, it's almost, you know, it's, it's almost in need of something new. You know, to actually keep everything quarantined with it and confined to three, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that there's a better explanation for it. The mind. Plain and simple. The mind is the motivating force to actually manipulate matter, that waveform, and create the information. So, in, in this case here, you know, from a, an individual perspective, it may be hard to understand the power of the single mind and its capability to dominate the world just because one may not necessarily want that responsibility. And that's why the disassociation occurs. Anyways, more later. So I'm reading something about this man. Uh, his name's Chin Huzen. Um, he was born in, 19, uh, in China in 1911, and he left for the United States in 1935. Now, he had, uh, he had actually been a proud supporter of the United States and believed in the values and everything here. Um, but uh, he kind of serves as an example of the overall power of the collective consciousness of a nation and its ability to be able to manipulate um, somebody's actions at a granular level. So Chen um, exemplifies a curious uh, flexibility of personal conviction. He was betrayed by the United States, uh, ultimately um, being accused of um, being a, uh, a spy for the Chinese and everything when... Um, during World War II, and uh, for five years he was placed under house arrest. And uh, despite the fact that he had secret clearances and everything for the universities that he worked for, Caltech, uh, a couple other agencies like that, he worked on Manhattan Project, U.S. Army Air Force, he got to understand all this stuff. Um, hold on a second. Okay, so as I was saying, um, so this dude, um, Chen Zwing, um, he ended up uh, getting trained, you know, more or less by Caltech, by, uh, you know, MIT, uh, just a number of different authorities and everything on nuclear science and, and a number of different capabilities and everything for the uh, government. But uh, ultimately, um, through a relationship with the FBI, he ended up becoming ostracized and uh, isolated, and he wasn't allowed to do some of the work they did, and so he ended up basically saying fuck you to the country, and he ended up leaving. Well, ultimately, um, he went back to China, uh, to mainland China, and at that point he ended up working directly with Mao Zedong and ended up uh, assisting the country with the rapid... Um, for lack of better words, technological progress of the nation 
to almost parallel the United States. Now, there's two different possible per, you know, primary perspectives, at least from my perspective, to look at this. One is it's a threat, you know, and this individual and everything was sent over there and, you know, blah, 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 took over, you know, technology and that kind of stuff. But there's another perspective, and that perspective is he was specifically engineered and educated as a person and over a long series of events and everything ultimately um, led to the point of where he ended up doing what he did which was well known within intelligence operations and everything uh, which would cause him to psychologically shift his allegiance and be motivated by think something deeper you know than uh, then he would have been motivated here in the United States, which is his simple, <laughs> his simple uh, comp competitive spirit. You know, so when he was um, defied, his competitive spirit was riled up, and at that point, taken advantage of, and to some degree, he was an emissary, a technological emissary for the United States from a capitalistic perspective, which ultimately has led China. Um, down the path of becoming a capitalistic nation. Now, it, it's kind of interesting, if you think about this from a series of calculated events and everything, um, on how how far um, the collective mind can simulate possibilities and how much can actually be done. Um, and it may not necessarily be a single individual, you know, that uh, is making this these decisions, or a single collective mind is capable of making these decisions, but it really is. You know, ultimately, um, this man, you know, and his betrayal was a result of a, a um, well, what's, what's the best word? Not necessarily a single agency, but it could be an agency that understands over a period of 50, 60 years, you know, that his, you know, that uh, his position and his ultimate, um, betrayal by the United States would result in a person that ultimately led to the creation of, of uh, China as we know it today. You know, so without him, we would not have had the rapid technological progress and parallelism, you know, of their country to our country. Without him, you wouldn't have had the capability to be able to um, not just match services and uh, products, um, but also to provide innovations and new potential ideas and everything to continue this thing called capitalism as a as a steamroller, you know, an engine per se. You know, so without him. Um, and without what he went through, you know, so, you know, it comes down to, you know, you might, you might have a tendency to believe, believe it's all, you know, serendipity, right? You know, that there's no, that there's no driving motivating force. But let's say it's a highly calculated set of events that actually led to this position. And this calculation you know, it's relatively cold, it's relatively unfilling, but it also masters time and it masters space. You know, and ultimately led to the development of this country and everything, and, you know, it, it was planned. You know, and all it took was one domino, one single domino, to transform an entire country from a, a barely pre-industrialist society to a communism, you know, and then through that communism, catapult it to a capitalistic society and everything, of which now is basically, you know, a a a participant uh, with the United States, you know, in a global economy and that kind of stuff.
It's kind of interesting. You know, that one single domino, that's all it took. You know, now some might argue that it, it was more than that. Well, potentially. You know, but really, you know, all it took was one person to start, you know, the shift of an entire nation from a collective standpoint and everything to become something other than what it was before. So, um, ultimately, you know, he ended up, uh, he helped, let's see, he returned to China in October 1955, and uh, it says here China's industrial uh, development was permanent with barely the technology to build a decent automobile. And um, because of him, Beijing's scientific elite was in awe of him, and uh, he, and because of their reverence for this man, and because of his education and everything, um, it elevated him to a point that uh, he ended up um, more or less accelerating the development of uh, technology, you know, and, uh, and the whole society, you know, as a whole, transformed him, literally transformed him. And uh, it's just like, uh, you know, to, so here's the thing to think about. You know, let's say there's a future society, a.k.a. now, um, that's, in a literal sense, manipulating the past on an active basis. And this isn't a passive thing, it's an active basis. And these past events are, are twiddled constantly. Um, now we see, you know, the results of these twiddlings and everything on a daily basis. And our kids are educated, you know, to understand history from an absolutism perspective and everything. This is an indoctrination of education and everything. Um, but through that process and everything, they're taught a history that we ourselves weren't taught when we were young. So as we go through these processes and everything, we start to understand that history for somebody that's 20 years younger than us is different than history for ourselves, is different for somebody that's 20 years older than us. Each one has a history that they were taught that basically shapes their ideological perspective of the world. Um, and cultures and climate and technology and all that stuff and everything, but that has a tendency to shift to, to mutate over time and everything. Well, um, one of the things that, uh, you know, a a, f a fictional per perspective on this is I know myself um, that uh, Green Lantern, you know, is a uh, is a white dude, you know, called Hal Jordan, and uh, he was a uh, USAF Air Force pilot, and he ended up crashing, and uh, at that point. Basically, an alien ended up saving his life and providing him with the capability to be able to be Green Lantern. Well, um, apparently, the next generation of children have this uh, belief that the guy's black. Well, I mean, this is the minor changes, deviances that history creates, is minor changes over time through media sources and everything. Well, on a compounding basis, uh, if you actually look at uh, across time and everything, you know, I'm getting a synopsis, a snapshot, you know, over the course of my lifetime of media and everything, and it's quite likely that we've been gyrating, you know, through um, basic changes, you know, fundamental changes and everything like this, where Starbuck, at least, is depicted in 19, uh, 1980s uh, Battlestar Galactic as a male. Didn't watch the series, didn't really particularly enjoy it, but then all of a sudden they ended up having Starbuck as depicted by a female, you know, and she's kind of a badass and everything, and uh, it's also got Trisha Helper and makes it so where I want to watch for the sexual aspect of things. And boom, all of a sudden you have what I consider as a likable show. And now I know Starbuck as a uh, as both a place I go for coffee and also a wonderful uh, wonderful actress that uh, played a uh, played her in a TV show called Battlestar Galactica. Now, who's accurate? You know, with their perception of who Starbuck is. 
Well, I mean, you always have the chronology, you know, to look at things through, you know, the chronological lens of basically saying, okay, I'm looking at 1978's Battlestar Galactica versus 2003's Battlestar Galactica, and there's a difference between those uh, those media sources and everything. You know, but um, that's actually the thing is, you know, not everything um, takes into account the chronological lens and also the chronological influences for these things called facts. And uh, unfortunately... Um, you know, the difference between fact and fiction for some minds, and in particular, you know, I'm referring to myself at an earlier age and everything, you know, it was hard to distinguish what, what is a fact versus what's fiction. Um, you know, I mean, for me, a fact was what I was told was a fact. You know, documentary is a fact, you know. These things are, you know, positioned as facts are indeed facts. Well, it only came until a little bit later that I started understanding that's not necessarily the case. You know, if it's called fiction, you know, I mean, if it's referred to as fiction, then in a general sense, it's not real. Well, until all of a sudden I ended up having a series of hallucinations and I started saying, bullshit, this shit isn't real. You know, I experienced it. You know, just because you didn't experience it doesn't mean I did. And at, at, at that point, once I started realizing what I was doing psychologically, intellectually, you know, I started realizing that, uh, wait a second, Everything, you know, that's been told to me over the course of my life and everything had been predicated on this belief, you know, that facts are facts, that fictions are fictions, you know, until all of a sudden I've got this contradiction, a direct contradiction with, with the term fiction, you know, in my own life and everything. And I can't, I can no longer refute, you know, or support the belief that all facts are facts and that fi all fictions are fictions. So what this, uh, how I'm trying to, you know, work this is, um, let's say that uh, that time is constantly being um, manipulated, not necessarily in a subversive way, but in a in a way that's unintended through the constant manipulation of media sources and everything to basically try to renew um, franchises, to try to renew information. You know, whether or not that's um, you know the whole idea and concept of uh, Hitler and trying to create new movies that basically basically regarner interest and everything, um, or, you know, it's fictionally based TV shows and that kind of stuff. There's a tendency to try to actually spin things in ways that actually make it more pleasant, more acceptable, more, um, less fearful and, and more, you know, more engaging to the audience and basically renewing it for the audience. Well, I mean, I've had this question, this outstanding question, how long has this been going on? You know, the Al Jolson song, how long has this been going on, you know, um, so when it comes down to it, it's just like you have an event like this where, you know, maybe there's information sources that fully understand that time itself has been repeating, you know, that, uh, events themselves, um, you know, are, are not just calculated, but in a, in a very real sense, people have mastered time travel and have t mastered time alteration mechanisms, you know, which starts, starts at this thing called the story. You change the story, you can in a literal sense alter time itself. You know, but that's the problem. If actual events are actually carried within the fiction, and the fiction itself is undergoing constant revision, then what happens to the memory of those factual events? Further disassociation, and, and that's by design. 
You know, so in any case, um, is it possible to actually change this historical uh, event and everything, you know, right here, right now? Well, it depends on your perspective. From my perspective, this is ancient history, you know, but let's say it's not a part of your history, you know, but let's say my history is more interesting to you than yours. You accept it as fact. You know, for me, I'm, I'm describing it as fact because this is kind of the world that I want to go into. ESP, PK, um, all this kind of stuff, it surrounded me my entire life. I'm not talking about ghosts and goblins, I'm talking about the ability to, you know, for superheroes to really exist. You know, I'm talking about uh, Superman and, you know, um, Batman and, you know, sure, some of the bad guys too, Galactus and Doctor Doom and all that kind of stuff. You know, you can't, you know, sure you can't have the good without the bad, but the way I look at it is some of these superheroes are going to want to be entertained. You know, so the way I look at it is, yes, these events um, that have been historically depicted and everything, you know, are things that I'm accepting as reality. And the same thing holds true for, you know, the concept that's uh, discussed in the Bible and everything. For a long time throughout my life and everything, I had actually dismissed the events depicted in the Bible as basically fabrication. There's no proof for it. There's no evidence. I can't go back in time to actually prove it. Well, that was, uh, you know, a little bit of a mental... Uh, a mental lie. Yes, I can go back and prove that it happened. You know, and to me, I've I've proven, you know, both indirectly and directly that it that it has happened. You know, now the next step is, you know, how is it actually create more, you know, of these things that I actually want in my life and everything. Well, it means finding finding a, a way to analogize the events that I'm actually wanting to happen. You know, with real life uh, established fact, anyways. You know, t creating ties, mechanisms, mental ties, if you will. And this right here, you know, the CIA has had a long history, documented history, and uh, a lot of uh, published documentation everything detailed the experimentation, you know, with um, basically supernatural and super, you know, superhuman capabilities. I myself, I've had quite a few happen within my life. You know, I've seen time dilated, you know, um, both on on uh, medication and off medication. I've seen glitches without uh, drugs. Um, I've had out-of-body experiences. I've, um, I've been powerfully influenced, you know, through peer pressure and through pressures ex externally that I had no fucking clue where they were coming from. You know, so to say that the power of other people's minds to be able to influence me in ways I don't understand is just a little bit of a misunderstatement. You know, um, an underestimation is a better word for it, you know, of the powerful capabilities of people's minds. You know, as an individual, we have the capability to be able to alter reality itself. You know, similarly, you know, we collect together. That creates a, a, power, a more powerful um, mind in a general sense to be able to alter time itself. You know, and particularly when information becomes consolidated and collectively agreed on, that actually creates societies, creates entire histories and timelines. You know, in this case here, it, it basically, it, it draws, you know, a, a new version of China, if there ever was one. You know, and draws away from the previous version of, of what there was. You know, so Tiananmen Square, you know, something I've referred to a couple times and everything, doesn't exist um, according to them. You know, the whole standing up against the oppression of the uh, collective regime and, and all that kind of stuff and everything, according to them, they, you know, their history and everything doesn't have that documented. But we do, at least here in the United States and everything. And uh, without pointing fingers and basically saying which one's accurate, personally, I say both of them are. You know, this is how 
alternate timelines are created. This is actually why, you know, things that uh, are depicted as fiction and everything, you know, um, this is actually what makes them fiction. I just choose to take a different path and everything than the rest of the world, and I choose to become a, a product of, of other people's fictions if they don't want to believe in what I have to say and everything, and I'm fine with that. You know, for me, life is, in part, not just an exploration journey, you know, but it's also about having fun and experiencing the possibilities. And to me, you know, part of the journey of becoming Q is also taking, you know, advantage and understanding that manipulation of time is my domain. And this is a part of accepting it, you know, is through PK and uh, ESP and other uh, mind control types of things and everything. Anyways, more later. So I um I just got back from a place called Celestial Healing just now. And uh Celestial Healing is they call it uh the science says celestial healing, a metaphysical community. And uh it's more or less devoted to, you know, pursuits of the mind, body and spirit, the combination of the the three together. And um, as I'm reading this stuff and everything, or paying attention and doing my research and checking out these things, um, one thing I'm realizing is uh, I got into um, EverQuest years back, and um, I, I over, over the course of you know the last what 20 years, some odd years since that game came out and everything. I, I've looked at uh, things like the movie The Matrix, and I've asked questions, you know, what is it, you know, let's say that is real, and uh, what are they doing, what are the robots doing to the minds of these individuals that are placing them inside the Matrix and everything, what kind of program makes it so where a human can actually be put into something like this, um, you know, a, a, you could call it a simulation or whatever it is that you want to call it, and um more or less be in a controlled environment that uh, that a machine you know can actually control you know and, and here's here's um why i'm saying that is you know from a mach machine's perspective and everything the human um exists um as a as a mind within a world and that world uh, isn't necessarily you know, to the the mind of the individual residing within that matrix isn't necessarily um, real, or is real, you know, so for all intents and purposes, the environment that that human exists within is real, you know, so whether or not it's tasting that steak, um, or it's, you know, cutting oneself, you know, with a knife accidentally or purposely, um, or it's feeling the cold coldness of the air, or it's smelling the scents, to some degree, the environment within a matrix um, isn't just a, a physical uh, simulation, it's a cerebral one as well, you know, meaning it's an intellectualized event. And uh, to some degree, um, the whole concept of PK, um, psychokinesis, and um, you know, also the idea of creating and starting fires with the mind, and all this, uh, you know, the idea of remote viewing, is nothing more than more or less um, understanding that the interconnections aren't physical between things; they're psychological, they're mental. So. 
to some degree, when I played EverQuest, you know, uh, if you're going to ask what program actually goes within the minds of the individuals, um, to some degree the program is a program like EverQuest. You know, it's a video game. At, at first, it's basically nothing more than a digital reality. You know, a digital reality that shows the constraints, you know, of the physical environment in which a person inhabits, you know, and the constraints are, you know, physics-based, uh, physics you know, such as gravity works in a predictable way, you know, where you drop something and it falls on the ground, and, you know, where you jump off of a cliff and, a cliff and you accelerate at a certain rate, and that certain rate is a predictable speed and everything, that predictable speed, you know, results in, you know, provided you have enough height and everything, death to the, uh, to the individual. You know, so to some degree, that's what the program of the Matrix is, is more or less uh, it's, a, it's a program, a digital program to some degree, that runs in the mind of the individual until that individual evolves to a certain extent intellectually and is able to grasp the larger picture of the community of what's created, you know, through the Matrix in itself. So, and uh, Neo's rising, you know, to the point of being able to you know, more or less control it from within and the capability to fly, you know, isn't anything more than just a, a secondary level of programming skills. You know, you've got a first level of programming skills, which might be, you know, to work within C or C Sharp or, or Visual Basic or, you know, Assembler or whatever it is. But then all of a sudden, you know, you get to the point like I did where you realize that you're, in a literal sense, learning how the mind functions, you know, how interconnections work, um, the rationality of applied philosophy, you know, um, what applied philosophy looks like from an if-then-else statement perspective, um, cases and switch statements and multi-threaded environments are nothing more than a, you know, understanding of the mind and its capability and ain't capability to, you know, be schizophrenic from one perspective, you know, but from another perspective, it's nothing more than a multi-threaded computer. Um, you know, same thing for multiple personality disorders and, and bipolar, these disorders of the mind from a linear perspective, from a nonlinear perspective, at least from a programmer's perspective, are perfectly natural things that allow us the capability to be able to be more capable as programmers, more adept at, at basically manipulating the external thing called a computer, but from an internal perspective, you know, we are the computer that we're operating on, you know, so, you know, as uh, as I went to a Celestial Awakening just now, I, I got a kick out of the uh, statement, a metaphysical community, that's the first time I really saw that, Now it's always been there, you know, but it's the first time I really saw it, and I started realizing, you know, as I walk out with five stones, you know, I walk out with uh, something called Malachite, um, another one called Star Ruby, and uh, another one called Lapis Lazuli. Each one, you know, was featured in, you know, the uh, the uh, the EverQuest. Every single one. Now, the Star Rubies, far, far and away, between that and the Star Sapphire, are some of the most expensive magical stones that you could acquire within the EverQuest world. And each one of these are, are necessary in order to be able to cast spells. And the spells literally... Um, chewed up, um, consumed, you know, it, uh, it consumes, uh, if you're doing a spell or if I remember correctly, it's a, 
it's a certain spells require certain regions, and these regions are, in, in a lot of cases, the physical stones, you know, and more or less it transforms that physical stone into, you know, and combined with the belief, you know, into the actual spell itself. <laughs> so if you look at um, EverQuest, it's nothing more than a program that literally, you know, guided me, you know, to find value in these stones, which ultimately I bought with one day the belief that potentially they're, you know, going to be capable of um, harnessing magic for me. You know, that uh, they themselves, you know, are going to act as conduits. You know, I don't believe that these stones are going to be eradicated or chewed up or consumed in the process, you know, um, but what I do believe is they're certainly each one unique in themselves and capable of uh, basically acting as a conduit for my mind, you know, in much the same way that a computer acts as a conduit to be able to, um, to be able to program, you know, other minds, to be able to program, you know, this thing called the matrix or, you know, if you want to refer to it uh, you know, from another perspective, the internet. You know, each one, you know, is responsible for, you know, altering reality itself, you know, from various different perspectives and everything. You know, and the mind itself, my mind, is singularly capable of, of basically having that energy channeled through external props, you know, you could say. So, that's actually, it's, uh, you know, for me, you know, going down there, it's just like, oh, I'm buying stones, which I know full well, you know, um... They, which which I which have value to me, based on my prior experiences, and you know, do will they ultimately find value for, for others? Who knows? I mean, personally, I don't care. You know, um, I just like the idea of having and holding a star ruby, you know, in my physical hands. You know, something that previously was confined to the digital world, and I'd never seen one, you know, in the real world. And boom, here I see one in the real world. Did it exist before I played it in the in the video game? You know, not in my reality. You know, um, same thing holds true for malachite and uh, and um, uh, what is it? The other one, lapis lazuli. Each one to me didn't exist. Was it here? Well, that's hard to say. You know, I mean, you, you can certainly look at historical record and historical record. My bet is will actually predate it to my awareness of it. You know, but that's that's how reality likes to function. It likes to disassociate ourselves from the actual creation and you know make us not responsible for it. I mean, to be honest, I don't give a shit anymore. I mean, I know I'm in a co-creation, or in, you know, responsible for creating my, my world. You know, I don't need to disassociate myself from it. It's me. I am it. You know, and uh, this, you know, relationship, you know, isn't any different than the relationship others have with their own universe. You know, we hear words, and we see, you know, pictures and imagery and, you know, whatever it is, however we translate the information from alternate realities to our own. You know, but the concept and the idea that, you know, ultimately we're not responsible for it is, you know, kind of what a machine-like guidance and perspective is and why the matrix might come into existence and everything. But ultimately we have to control it, you know, as individuals. And that individual control basically creates and expands the possibilities, 
you know, and makes it a lot less boring for basically everybody. You know, so when George Burns refers to himself as God, as does Morgan Freeman, um, as does countless other individuals that I've seen on TV and the movies over time, are they full of shit? Nah. You know, but my mind has a tendency to disassociate them from that identity, you know, believing that it doesn't exist and more or less debunks it by basically making, turning each one into an actor and leading me to believe that it was all fiction to begin with. Is that really the truth? Eh, that's a part of the truth. That's how, to, how it reassociates to me and my reality. You know, but ultimately, I'm God of my reality. You know, so it's not an identity I particularly wanted or want, but it's one that I'm, I have to embrace. So I need levity now. That's what I can tell. I can certainly tell that when I was driving there. Anyways, yeah, I got some cool stones, five of them in total. Didn't know I was recording there. Part of uh, being a, a part of um, the CIA and the NSA and working for either of those agencies is the the knowledge and necessity to distribute information for public awareness and public consumption, and uh, to not work under the umbrella of complete. Uh, oh, what's the best word for this? Complete privacy and complete isolation for any project that's involved. And uh, this has actually been something that's, uh, that really both agencies have worked hand-in-hand, hand, um, especially the CIA, but the NSA started doing it as well, uh, starting with pretty much any the movie Enemy of the State, just detailing some of the technologies and everything that was available to the, uh, you know, for, to the NSA and how they actually leverage things. But uh, there's a, a part of the reason for doing this is to reinforce progress. Now, everybody knows within both agencies that time travel and time manipulation techniques are a simple fact of life. Um, there's beings that are capable of doing things that are depicted in fictional devices such as Star Trek and such as, um, I mean, you can go on with the list of science fiction shows and movies and everything that uh, are discovered on a regular basis and everything. And uh, as a result, um, anything and everything that is discovered uh, at least is p positioned 
somehow in some way for the American public to basically consume from a fictional perspective. And that's kind of like the big reason for fiction, you know, to be used and everything, is basically distribution of information for public consumption and everything, just to basically make the public aware of what's out there. And the reason for this is simple. It's like an immune system. If the public's not aware of what, what's not out there and it gets blindsided by it, well, it, that can cause some pretty severe problems and everything. You know, um, Black Plague is a great example of something like this, where a disease has a capability to be able to propagate through the population because the population simply isn't prepared for it. So, and the same thing holds true, you know, for diseases of the mind, for diseases of philosophy, for d diseases of... Um, of thought process. So basically, um, in, in inoculation, in, what is it, how do they call it? Inoculation is done by basically releasing media on a selective basis and everything. And in many cases, to select individuals, uh, just basically to make it so where it, there's an awareness of what goes on out there, but not necessarily um, full disclosure for, for everything to everybody. So, and here's a good example. Ebola. AIDS. These diseases and everything hit segmented populations, and in particular, certain populations, such as the gay population, pretty hard for AIDS in the 1970s and everything, simply because they weren't prepared for it. Well, you know, through awareness, and particularly through film, you know, um, there's basically been that creates an immunity. The mind itself is just as capable of being able to diminish the effect of disease, of of problems that actually occur physiologically within the body and everything. That's a well-known fact that's been established for a very long time through something called the placebo effect. Placebo is a very real thing, you know, but um, the sustainability of a cure and everything um, isn't necessarily carried through the medications and through the drugs, it's through an alteration of the mindset. So in order to basically become aware and start creating awareness of some of the problems that actually exist out there, um, that's actually what, uh, what these... Um, these agencies end up doing is basically distributing information um, on a widespread basis and everything through fictional channels, you know, and in particular there are certain targets that are developed on a regular basis, much to the target's lack of awareness, you know, um, the target may simply be receptive, you know, for this information and everything. So this creates a, you know, a little bit of a, a dichotomy, you know, for both intelligence agencies. And, you know, basically this was actually the chief problem that actually caused the issues when it came down to the 9-11 attacks. Um, Everybody knows, you know, that uh, that there was a lack of communication between um, the FBI, the Secret Service, the CIA, and the NSA concerning what was going on and everything. And um, when somebody's asked me what exactly happened during 9-11 and everything, and, and why did it happen, um, I respond with all the above, you know. I mean, they say, was it this, was it that, was it this, was it that? And I, I respond matter-of-factly, yes. It was all of them, and more. You know, there was a whole um, collusion of events, you know, whether or not it had to do with an insurance person, um, you know, the guy that owned the building and everything. The building was only at 50% occupancy, and uh, 
you know, they never really made a profit on it. And it was considered a landmark. And as a result, uh, people from a very public perspective and everything were, were regularly, um, you know, they saw it as a place as destination, you know, as a place that they eventually want to go visit or something like that. But very few people are or were driven to actually go to New York just to actually check out the World Trade Center. You know, it costs more to actually maintain the presence of the World Trade Center, you know, and there was actually more harm than good being caused by the World Trade Center's existence. And basically this whole um, concept and idea of Wall Street and, you know, the whole idea and concept of gluttony and, you know, <laughs> if you've seen the movie Wall Street, you know, that's what those buildings stood for, was a time and a place in American society and American history that more or less attracted the wrong kind of people to our place, to our culture, you know? So these buildings were huge. They were monolithic. They were, they weren't pretty by themselves, you know, two big, huge, you know, <laughs> basically um, cubes, you know, stacked out one on one on one and everything, you know, to the point that it was 115 or 117 stories tall and everything. You know, so um, ultimately, you know, the whole collusion of, of things that actually caused this event, um, there's, you know, you, you name it, every single one of them, however contradictive the arguments may appear, but every single one of the reasons listed is absolutely accurate. There was a cascade of issues and reasons why this occurred. There was a cascade of people that were actually responsible. Yeah, so it was to say that there was one tipping point, one action source, would be a lie. <laughs> Flat out would be a lie. I mean, you know, unless you wanted to look at me as being the, the responsible party, which that's, that's also true as well. You know, but here's the thing, you know, it happened. And I think that's that's one of the the problems, you know, that exists and everything is just this understanding that um, that media is a distribution center, you know, for information, and at the same time, anything anyone wants to study and get the truth about is available out there at any given time. So if you want to find out about, um, you know, something like. Um, teleportation in between different uh, planets and everything and technologies that exist for it, then just study the TV show Stargate. You know, Cheyenne Mountain actually does have a Stargate down at the base of it. You know, the TV show is actually based on the real-life concepts and the real thing that actually exists on it. No, it's not featuring the actual people that are actually involved in the project, likenesses in some cases, but for the most part, you know, the TV show's a fictional account, you know, just because of the fact that the characters and concepts and everything, you know, are, and, and story ideas, you know, based on the events, the real events that happened, maybe a little bit exaggerated, maybe a little bit glorified, but the fact is they happened, you know, so, and that's the interesting thing about fiction. It details what's already there. You want to study, you know, on interstellar travel. You want to understand the, the physics and, you know, involved with high-energy propulsion and everything. Take one look at Star Trek. Take one look at um, Battlestar Galactica. Um, you want to look at time travel and study time travel. 
Watch Terminator. Watch the time machine. Watch Back to the Future. Start paying attention to what happens, you know, and uh, and why. Start uh, understanding collective versus individual uh, minds and everything, and uh, and more or less uh, the storylines and everything. You know, pay attention to the consistencies between events and everything. Take a look at the TV show called Timeless. You know, look at the events that happen within that. Notice and analogize it to the, uh, you know, to the events that actually occur in Back to the Future. Each one of them, you know, details in very, very strong detail um, concepts that are regarded as theoretical simply because society, um, by and large, from a collective standpoint, hasn't actually collectively agreed on, on you know, a way forward. But just because that had, that collective agreement hasn't happened doesn't make something in, actu in actuality untrue. So, and, um, you know, part of the reason for fictionalizing events and fictionalizing, uh, you know, some of the technology and everything is flat out it has not fully been understood how far it can be manipulated and all the different possibilities and things that can happen with it. So... So in the end, you know, what it comes down to is just basically, um, if you look at technology and you're interested in studying technology and understanding anything, you know, whether or not it's concepts of the mind or, you know, ESP or, you know, PK, um, or it's computers and hacking. You know, um, one thing I've, I've actually trained quite a few hackers and everything, um, but uh, one of the first things I do when I train any hacker is um, I tell them about programming, you know, um, what I've experienced uh, as a programmer throughout the uh, different companies that I've experienced. You know, and um, one of the most, uh, I think one of the most important lessons for any programmer to understand, you know, any hacker to understand, is why we do what we do. And there's something called script kitties out there, um, which they have their place and their time and everything. And there is a differentiation between different types, types of hackers. There's a black hat, there's the white hat, which I formerly was. And um, to some degree it felt like I was black hat. And then there's a gray hat. Those that actually work right in between, knowing full well some of the things I'm doing aren't necessarily for the best, but I try. You know, and uh, conversely, you know, I, I also know that I push the edge, you know, for what's, what's morally, ethically, and socially acceptable, too. You know, and some of the hacking that I did do certainly was with drugs. I was hacking my own mind, you know. I was trying to understand it. I was trying to understand how my individual mind re reflected and related to the collective mind, you know, um, where these things called hallucinations came from relative to me, you know, and how I can actually become responsible for the creation and development of my own personal reality. You know, my reality decidedly hadn't been working for me before then. Sure, it had marginally, you know, but I wasn't wealthy. You know, I wasn't, um, you know, um, and when I talk about wealthy, I'm talking about um, <laughs> being able to live a, a very long life, you know, and basically go anywhere I fucking want to and, and have whatever I want to wherever I go. You know, so I'm talking about yachts, I'm talking about 737s that I own. I'm talking about um, being able to stay at uh, service departments and everything, no matter where I go. You know, I'm talking about uh, hiring a couple, you know, women to come along with me and just basically spend time with me and everything, to be my lovers and be whatever else I, I want them to do. 
You know, I'm talking about uh, having a huge house out with a uh, river that runs through it and everything. There was a lot of things that I wanted, you know, that I did not have before. Sure, I had a hefty bank account, but the fact of the matter was I was working my ass off, and by the time I ended up stopped working, I ended up having it all seized anyway. So I never really had it. I always had the promise of that money being there. But it never was. I was always pushed and pushed and pushed to work harder, to do what I was doing and everything, to maintain till I completely lost it. And at that point, boom. Money's taken from me. I can't help but think that some of that was contrived, and I'm not blaming or pointing the fingers at anybody, but it did motivate me to basically say, oh, that dependency is like an addiction. You know, and understanding addiction, and understanding, you know, the mind, my mind, and what I wanted, I needed to short-circuit, and I knew that a long time ago, but I didn't have the courage or, you know, <laughs> self-confidence to actually pursue it. I needed the courage and the motivation to basically say, wow, the money could achieve the things that I wanted to in an indirect way. But the problem is, the moment that I actually go to space, or go to a different country and everything that doesn't honor the dollar, or I go to an alternate reality, if I don't have the capability, I'll be just as broke there than I am now. Even if I had a trillion dollars here, if I was to find myself capable of achieving key-like powers, and I found myself, you know, well, I mean, leveraging key-like te technology without the powers, actually, and all of a sudden I found myself in a world that didn't know who I was, and didn't know how wealthy I was, and didn't give a shit, well, guess what happens at that point? Back to square one, right? I don't have any options, you know, financially. You know, I have to work within the confines of that financial system and everything, and everything has changed for me. So the Q-type powers and capabilities and everything are inevitable. and something I have to pursue. And the reason for it is, it's simple. One day, I woke up and I was in an alternate reality. Didn't have any value or understanding or respect for money as I knew it. That alternate reality is here. So, anyways. When it comes down to distribution of information and secrets and the need for secrets, um, in my opinion, it is essential for any and all intelligence to be done in secret. And uh, what I'm referring to is the acquisition of information that others might, might deem offensive. You know, so there's levels of secrecy. There's certain things that you might do in secret that I do in secret. Um, and, you know, while the volume of that has certainly diminished, over the years, there's some things that I still do, and it's just like, I have no desire to share this information with others. None. Zero. Zilch. 
Now, what's the extent of it? Well, doesn't matter. You know, what does matter is the belief and awareness that you're not alone when you're engaging these things. No matter what it is. And the philosophical moral pressure that you might feel to conform and not do those things. So, the distribution of information, you know, the free distribution of information, particularly things that are top secret, secret, um, Q clearance, there's a whole bunch of different clearances and everything across the board when it comes down to um, different agencies and that kind of stuff. There's clearances between agencies. Um, Department of Energy has its own clearances. President has a couple clearances and everything that are interchangeable with some of them. He doesn't have access to a Q clearance. And, you know, when it comes down to it, there's a a wide array. And uh, the reason for this is um, if you look at something called the Philadelphia Experiment um, as an example, it was a uh, problem back then because absolutely no, absolutely nobody besides the Navy was actually aware of this experiment and everything. They didn't share it with anybody. And um, they had to, um, they had a problem. And if you're not familiar with the Philadelphia experiment, it's in the 1940s where Navy um, worked with nuclear technology to basically um, try to try to hide a Navy vessel completely from view uh, through any any external sources and everything. I think they used a battleship or something like that. And um, I may be mistaken. Was it the Philadelphia experiment? Pretty sure it is. Philadelphia experiment. There we go. Yeah. So yeah, 1943, a top secret experiment aboard a Navy destroyer backfires. And uh, what ends up happening is um, a what they tried to do is basically make it make this ship um, stealth capable. So this is back in 1943, and they they leverage uh, magnetism um, through a form of uh, nuclear uh, radiation and everything. They had actually had a couple nuclear. Um, reactors on board that were responsible for this and uh, the goal was to actually steer light around it effectively creating what appeared to them to be a black hole so and, and light has a tendency to wrap around objects and everything um, in you know in something called the frame dragging effect that, that was predicted by Einstein a couple years before so they did this, and uh, what they did was they were trying to steer light and also trying to steal, steer audio. Anything that could potentially detect this, the theory was they can actually hide this destroyer and uh, quite literally creep up to the shores of a potential enemy, um, unseen, unheard, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, and uh, undetectable through radar or anything else, and all of a sudden pop out at a moment's notice. And boom, all of a sudden, they've, uh, <laughs> for strike capabilities or something like that. So, 
In any case, the experiment backfired. Um, they didn't understand that uh, what they were doing was, in fact, creating a black hole. And uh, it ended up, uh, basically, for the brief moment that they had on, it actually caused sailors to, some sailors, to literally fuse in, sift through. Um, they, they literally sunk through the material on the, on the ship. So some, you know, they found arms and legs and things like that that were actually partially into into the hull of the ship and everything, and they just, you know, more or less, it, it really wrecked havoc on the crew. Very few survived that incident and everything. Well, the gist of that story was they discovered that um, in a very early form, something called capabilities to be able to warp space and time. And they did this at a terrestrial level. You know, so this is an early form of uh, something that you actually see in, in Gene Roddenberry's uh, Star Trek, you know, with the, uh, the warp vessels. They have the capability to be able to generate a, a huge field around the, you know, the object of the starship itself, and at that point transport themselves across massive distances in space and everything at the blink of an eye. But uh, going back to this Philadelphia experiment, um, it was the type of thing that uh, they didn't expect it. They fucked up, and and really what ended up happening was they ended up, uh, you know, losing a lot of people in the process. Well, um, what also ended up happening was in 1984, uh, or thereabouts, two of the sailors actually reappeared. So this was something really interesting, an interesting effect where, you know, in a literal sense, you had 40 years that had gotten displaced. And in the early 70s, mid-70s actually, the CIA had started regularly getting into broadcasting some of the information that they were receiving through their various sources and their various uh, um more or less uh, discoveries and experiments and everything, and they made it a fact to start collectively de demonstrating this information, and the Philadelphia experiment was a key reason for this. Um, the belief is that that ship disappeared because of total lack of awareness of any experiments at the atomic level. Now, it, it's important to keep this frame in mind, you know, because throughout the 1940s, that's when the atomic bomb was developed in complete secrecy. Nobody, and I mean nobody that was on the project and everything outside the project was aware of what was going on. And the Philadelphia experiment was yet another project completely unassociated with the atomic, uh, the atomic bomb cr being created. One having no clue about the other, and as a result, this is this is demonstrating factually how reality functions. You know, so CIA came to the belief in the 1960s, especially the 1970s, that um, that when something doesn't have an external observer, and that external observer hasn't been educated in something called belief and the expectation that the crew are going to end up fine and that kind of stuff. Well, at that point, you know, it's like the challenger, right? 
the whole thing, you know, goes down the shitter. I'm not, Ed Challenger's a really piss poor analogy. That's actually contradicting exactly what I said. But um, basically, if you don't have an outside observer with the expectation that the outcome's going to be fine, then disaster ensues. So that's actually what the CIA concluded in the 1970s. And as a result, they started regularly uh, demonstrating the things that they had and fictional resources and everything. And Philadelphia Experiment is one such um, example of what they ended up uh, demonstrating. You know, is they didn't know at that point by their distribution of this information through public channels in an entertainment way, if um, these sailors that were retrieved, you know, uh, that actually came back from that Philadelphia Experiment, if they came back as a direct result of them starting the process of demonstrating this information to the public and everything. They flat out don't know. The timing is interesting, you know, because the timing started happening in 1970s, you know, where more or less, you know, they started distributing the information. I can't really get into, you know, what information they started distributing and everything, you know, publicly. That was a, that was real, but was also fictional. The same, you know, positive is fictional information and everything. So it, it was a dualistic result for the most part. But it's interesting because within 10 years of, of the CIA getting into this habitual uh, relationship, particularly with the, um, with, uh, the you know, Hollywood, once that started, it was really interesting because you saw some interesting events actually happen. And it increased the series of these events dramatically. So we're all of a sudden, you know, in the 1980, it's like 1982 or 1983, that's when they ended up having the, uh, these people that were displaced from time that were actually retrieved from the crew of the Philadelphia experiment, the actual Philadelphia experiment. And their lives were discussed in a fictionalized account in a romance love story and everything, and uh, made for great fodder for, uh, for Hollywood. I freaking loved the movie. And uh, didn't realize I loved the movie because it was based in part on on real events that actually happened, you know, a lot more so than than you know was actually publicized and everything. So this has been happening systematically since the 1970s, and um, you know events. Um, I can get into some of the events, and I don't want to scare you. You know that's the whole thing. You know there's some really really scary shit that goes on out there. You know that uh, that they've received. You know, but there's also some really, really fucking cool things too. You know, so and time travel's not the least of which is available out there. So, but then again, you know, it comes down to just understanding that everything that you can think of, um, at the same time you think of it, it actually exists somewhere. You know, and to some degree, it's our collective job and our collective responsibility to basically isolate those things that actually don't adhere, you know, to our societal framework and everything. Um, but also consider it for contributing to the society. You know, um, should we, you know, I mean, need more options? You know, should we want more to do? You know, so it's kind of funny. Me and my parents and family were going down to uh, um, the summer. We've already planned on it, the naked bike ride and everything, which I tried going to over and uh, over and well, I went to one time, but uh, we wanted to find out the bike route and just basically camp out and just watch it all go by and everything. Me and my friend Mike Vice. But uh, the guys acted like dicks, and 
it was just one of those things that was just like whatever you know so we couldn't find find the route and we couldn't just kick back and watch and everything so in any case it was just like if you're not uh, I got the feeling by the two guys that we asked you know they're older dudes and everything it's just like if we're if we're not participate participating we're perverts and that's just a problem fundamental problem with the mindset you know, just because one doesn't participate in things like that doesn't necessarily mean that observation makes you a pervert. It just makes you an observer. That's it. You know, and having so many years watching TV, it's like, fuck you. Um, but um, the act of observation helps pour the foundation for creating reality. And that was what the CIA came to conclude, and they have successfully proven this several times after that, you know, that the things that are done in secret, you know, if they create a counterpart, you know, that to some degree um, discusses this stuff in a public forum, i.e. Hollywood or comic books or, um, you know, TV shows or whatnot, I mean, you can go on with the list of possibilities. Well, you know, part of the problem that they're having right now is innovation. You know, they're trying to actually, they're they're having problems trying to actually obtain audiences. And uh, what they don't understand fully is um, they're going to have to quit looking for passive observers. My observation of um, what I saw out in the desert and everything, that was an active, active observation. What I saw was absolutely real. Now, at first, I had to dismiss it as a hallucination until I can actually understand the fundamentals behind it, which actually makes it so where I'm safe in environments like that. But at the time, I wasn't ready for the active observation of actually seeing a Terminator world, of jumping through alternate realities. I wasn't ready for it. Now, if I had the proper technology and had had, you know, something like uh, has been listed in um, what's it uh, TV show called Sliders. In Sliders, one of the theoretical physicists he uh, he invents this sliding device that um, basically there's a timer and it, uh, in theory, that timer is supposed to return him back to his origin point and everything once uh, once he slides into an alternate reality. And it's easily one of my favorite shows uh, that I've ever watched and everything. It appeared in the 19, 1990s. And um, this theoretical physicist, he's working in his basement, and uh, he's basically experimenting with quantum, I, I think it's quantum tunneling or something like that. And uh, he creates a wormhole, and that wormhole spins out of control, captures him, him and his girlfriend, his professor of physics, um, who regards him as a very talented but misfit uh, physicist, and this traveling um, song man that uh, adds the spice. Um, he's like a Leroy-type character and everything. Um, but... Uh, in any case, um, they end up um, starting to skip between alternate realities. And uh, this show uh, that went on for five seasons, um, and, and again, I regard it both as a fictionalized show, but also an account of real events that happened to somebody for, you know, in the quote-unquote real world. So through this experience, is a better way to uh, put it, um, it just depicts this uh, this you know, physicist, um, you know, theoretical physicist student and his journey with his friends and, you know, a couple other people or with his uh, girlfriend and a couple other people. Now, what I found interesting about the show was, you know, the, the imaginativeness for it. They end up um, going to one of the first planets they go to is an ice planet. 
uh, so where Earth is is it's in every version of of um, alternate reality that they end up going to is is basically it's random. They have absolutely, unfortunately, no control of it because he lost control of the experiment. Um, the timer indicates how long that they have there, and they're basically at the whim of the timer. So for me, there's two parts of this equation that absolutely suck. Number one is the randomness of where you go. You know, it's just like, okay, so I'm I'm in a horrible place right now. What's to say the next place isn't going to be worse than this one? And so on and so forth. You know, um, that would fucking suck to have no reprieve from being able to go to places that I want to. You know, I like the idea of, you know, it's like a car, being in a car and pointing towards Starbucks and saying, I'm going to Starbucks today. Well, I want the same thing with an alternate reality chooser. Flip a channel. I want to go here and check out a Terminator world today. You know, flip the channel. I want to go on, you know, I'm not talking about watching it on a movie. I'm talking about actually just going to tour it firsthand and everything. You know, I, I feel a little bit, um, yeah, I just feel like, you know, grabbing some emotions in me and painting those emotions and just basically experience them a little bit more vividly. Some of the emotions that I felt when I visited, when I was in that Terminator world, just really fucking blew me away. And I just wasn't ready for any of it. You know, but um, let's say I'm actually in the mood for it one day. I want to go check out, you know, this alternate reality where Terminators, you know, completely blew away reality and, you know, just the smells, the visceral feels, everything that's associated with it. Boom, I changed my channel to that and all of a sudden I'm in this reality where, you know, Terminator world happened and maybe I'm there and I'm just documenting it from a historical perspective. I love my history, you know, to some degree. You know, not necessarily under understanding the vivid timelines, you know, when it comes down to the chronology of events that happen with precision and everything, but the major events, the pivotal events, you know, the JFKs and the Challenger explosions and the 9-11s and, you know, those momentous events that basically cause a, a cascade of, of things to change and just trying to find those things or just seeing what those things are. You know, that's actually why I would love to go visit a Terminator world. I'd like to find out what series of events actually led to this major thread of alternate reality being created. You know, so far, Terminator itself in, in the series has yet to capture that. You know, John Connor is the person that's actually responsible for this, right? No, not necessarily. Because John Connor turns bad and everything. And it's just like, they have yet to actually find a pinpoint pivotal event and everything that actually creates a, a Terminator world. Well, what if that's my responsibility? Is ultimately to put the, put the energy out there to say, you know what, that's because it's my destination. I mean, I'm not interested in... in being in hell, but to some degree, I'm also curious enough, you know, particularly with what I've experienced in the past and everything, that I just want to know not only that, but I'd also see, like to see a, ro a robot ruled world, a Terminator ruled world, just out of cur for curiosity's sake. You know, um, other things too, you know, just being able to flip the channels to alternate realities. But that's actually what I loved about Sliders. The first world that they show up to is basically an Ice Age um, planet where San Francisco is completely, this is where the TV series is based, is uh, based in San Francisco, and all of a sudden they go to, and there's an Ice Age there. There's one where dinosaurs were roaming the earth. Apparently something changed in the, uh, the comet that, uh, or the meteor that struck the Yucatan that actually took out the dinosaurs never hit. 
You know, so as a result, San Francisco is overrun by dinosaurs. There's a Wild West world where some pivotal event for industrialization never occurred, and as a result, San Francisco is completely overrun by uh, by Western society, and there's gunfights in the street and that kind of stuff. Um, then there's, what is it, there's a, more of a futuristic world, you know, where basically there's, uh, you know, genocide that's occurring for, for people that actually catch this disease. There's a naked world. That's one of my favorites that I have to go to. You know, it's my belief that that actually happens because of a version of the Bible that was put out there that basically says, you know, hey, you know, the fig leaf never occurred. You know, so it's my belief that it's not just part of partway my responsibility, you know, to start understanding these things from a mind perspective and putting these ideas and concepts out there, but it's also going to be my responsibility to not passively observe these realities, but actively by going there. It's like my going to China. When I observed China, did China come into existence at that point? I mean, from my perspective, absolutely. You know, um, <laughs> me going to the Terminator world, too, you know, does that cause it increasingly, my observation of these realities and everything? Does that solidify the their existence and everything? And does my participation, my willing participation, in an active, from an active perspective, rather than the passive perspective, solidify and actually make that stronger? I'm suspecting it does. And here's why. Um, whenever I, I tend to participate in something, you know, if I'm passively observing things, a lot of times my attention isn't fully with it. Hold on a second. My dad was uh, just complimenting me on um, the, uh, the dinner that I fixed tonight. I fixed uh, a South Asian dish known as keema and uh what it is it's just basically it's a meat with uh, curry spices and a whole bunch of other things to it and definitely had a little kick to it and uh i'm definitely full as a result of it but um getting back into that it's just like you know if i was the sliders dude i would fucking be hating life you know sure it'd be kind of cold skipping over but Ultimately, it would just really suck because there's no control over it. Not only that, but when I get sick and tired of something, to go back, you know, to where things were before, you know, that that would just be kind of like crucial. You know, I ended up leaving the country and everything for six months' time, and um, you know, I had a great time touring, uh, you know, going to Singapore, going to uh, to Hong Kong. And um, I actually wanted to stay away. You know, I really didn't have that much of an interest in coming back. And um, I think a lot of it just had to do with the stress and everything I was encountering. Well, um, shortly after that, I ended up taking a trip to Latin America. And I, I had a hellish time, you know. Um, I mean, it wasn't, it was good for certain parts of it. I got to go check out Havana for the first time um, in Cuba. I went to Cartagena. I went to a whole bunch of different places and everything. Um, but uh, I ended up spending some time with a friend over in Guatemala, City, Guatemala. He has, he's actually from there, and he was in my MBA program. And it was basically a double whammy. Um, at the same time, a, uh, a hurricane hit. Um, the volcano went off, and I couldn't help but think I had something to do with it. Well, now I know that's actually the truth, but, you know one has a tendency to dismiss everything that indicates your narcissism is uh, is happening, is actually validated, but uh, it is what it is. 
in any case, um, where I was going with that was uh, this this trip that I had um, had a marked time, and I ended up cutting it a little bit short because of all the events that ended up happening in Guatemala City. And I went back and I booked a flight. Um, I ended up getting out of the city of Guatemala City, um, ended up going over to Honduras by bus, apparently missing a cave-in that actually occurred over there. And um, at that point, I ended up going to uh, um, straight to Florida, where I ended up spending some time over at Disneyland and Disney or Disney World and a whole bunch of different things over there. Well, there's something to be said about having something called terra firma, firm terra firma, firm earth to set myself debt back down on, and a place to actually um, call home. You know, that uh, I can actually just rest my head out and and say, you know, this is, you know, this is familiar territory. It's a place that I can go to, that things are going to happen in a predictable way and everything. Um, I could calm down from the excitement of the events that I had and everything. Um, I know what I'm going to get when I go out for a meal. Um, I know what I'm going to get when I go out and hang out with friends or go get drunk or go get high. Um, in a general sense, the things that I'm exposed to here in the United States are entirely predictable. You know, um, I, I started getting to the point where things became highly predictable while I was traveling abroad and everything. And uh, that, for me, is actually what's motivated me and, you know, and my desires to actually pursue traveling to alternate realities, particularly from an active perspective. So, you know, that's all I'm saying is, you know, if I'm to actually travel to alternate realities in the same fashion, you know, that the Sliders guys did, there'd have to be two dramatic changes. Number one, I'd have to be able to set the channel to come back right back here to the same place that I ended up leaving. And uh, whether or not that's actually to have a girlfriend here, you know, or a family, you know, like my mom, dad, or something like that, or, or whatever, having a consistent and persistent home, place to come back to, predictable environment and everything, makes all the difference in the world. You know, knowing that that's there. You know, so let's say I go for an extended period of time, and all of a sudden, boom, I come back, and it's just like, oh, you know, I need, I need, you know, the good old whatever. You know, Scottsdale was that for me for a long time and everything. Portland's starting to feel like that, too. You know, but it doesn't matter. Any place here in the, here in the United States tends to function pretty much kind of the same. You know, so it just comes down to having that place to come back to in the United States, you know, after going to a world where basically, you know, sure, everybody's naked, but there's going to be different rules, there's going to be different laws, there's going to be different things I do wrong, you know, and having to stress out, you know, with that, the stress is inevitable. It will happen. You know, so for me, knowing and anticipating that there will be some stressors based on law differences and legal differences, there'll be some stressors based on psychological, um, ethical, um, moral differences and everything, um, there's going to be stressors that are going to be hit me every which way when I go visit other planets and other, other alternate realities and everything. Now, I don't want to go fucking crazy because I don't have reprieve from this. Now, for me, having 
a place that I can go to that I can actually set my feet down on the ground and just basically walk on the beach you know in San Fran or in San, was it uh, Los Angeles or you know go to you know to Scottsdale again and hang out at the Kierland area you know um, any number of different things or just go to Vegas and have a wild weekend party and going to strip clubs and getting you know doing coke with strippers back in a hotel room all of that is something that's predictable, it's fun, and it's also not my life. It's the life that I return to when I need a predictable set of events to happen. I'm not looking to replace that. I'm looking to enhance that, to create different opportunities, you know, to hell, find new ideas. I don't like the idea of my United States disappearing. I don't like the idea of my planet Earth disappearing, ever. I know that sounds selfish. But I do like the idea of contributing to the pool of predictability and the things, the offerings that this planet has by exploring alternate realities. By exploring time itself. Going back and just basically seeing history. You know, observing history. The Watcher. The guy that I actually wa you know, watched in the What If uh, comic books and everything. You know, there's no equivalent. I found the stories of The Watcher some of the most engaging, some of the most intriguing. You know, what if this happened? What if that happened? You know, and the Watcher would go out. I never had really taken into consideration up until recently that the Watcher was creating those alternate realities those alternate timelines. He'd go back and he'd twiddle with something. He'd show the different possibilities that could arise as a result of it. And he told the story accordingly. That's actually kind of where I'm heading with all this. Q isn't just a passive observer. He's an active influencer in creating new threads and new possibilities. He's me. It could be anybody. He has a choice, is what it comes down to. And something that mind found a home with me. Joint relationship and everything. So, in any case, the idea of sliders and sliding to alternate realities and not having ever the ability to get home just isn't amenable. Um, the ability for that timer to be able to basically sit there and say, oh, this sucks, and click on that timer and find my way home, you know, would be critical. You know, let's say I'm exploring different realities. You know, that's my goal. Just go explore. Go try things out. Go, go experience different things. Go find some of these places. You know, not just that, but look at the places that have actually already been 
discovered and everything and just go explore them a little bit more from you know from an American perspective you know apply a chronology and understand you know for the naked world what actually caused the naked world to become naked I mean it could for me it could be a, a wonderful first place to go to I'm not comfortable with being naked myself and to actually be in a place where everybody else is you know, um, is it a requirement of the law? I mean, I first would definitely have to do some observations of that. You know, what? how do they regard sexuality? Do they actually have sex? You know, I don't know. I mean, I, my assumption is, yes, they do. You know, but I don't know these things. You know, the same thing holds true for Terminator World, too. How? How do they react, you know, to explorers like me? I had the overall feeling. It's this weird, innate sense when I went to that world and everything that they were kind of laughing at me. Fucking Q. That's actually what I remember hearing. There he is again. And I was just like, again? I mean, I felt it, but I didn't hear it. I didn't, nobody told me this. It's something I felt. And it's just like, it, it almost felt like everybody was, you know, the truck drivers, uh, android faces that were driving by and everything. And it was like, each one, it was almost like they were laughing. To see a robot laugh. You know, it's just like, fucking cute. Doesn't he understand? It's just like, you know, I don't know. I had this feeling of total ridiculousness, a belief that I was vulnerable to anything. It was just, it was really kind of funny. But, in any case, the Sliders people, you know, the CIA or any other agency wanted to give me a timer where I can go and explore the alternate realities, and not only that, document it. Maybe take videos of it and everything, particularly with cameras that I don't have to, uh, you know, act, you know that I can actually wear passively or something like that that somebody doesn't see. Hell yeah, I'd wear one on a hat or I'd wear one on my, you know, I wouldn't wear it on my glasses. I don't like glasses, but uh, you know, a way that I can actually wear it without actually it being seen or um, without it being too obnoxious. Absolutely. I'd be there in a heartbeat. Let's put that puppy on. Let's go document shit. Let's go explore. That would be my goal. But, um, in any case. That's just to let you know. The whole sliders, I'm a victim of somebody else steering me to different time periods and everything. Sure, I'll take assignments on occasion. But without the ability to be able to return what I want to. Or roughly within a period of time and everything that at least, you know, is I'm aware of and everything. Eh. No. But yeah, in a heartbeat, I would actually go do it on an active basis. Flip a channel. Let's go to this world today. Let's explore that history. Let's hang out there for a bit. Hey, I need this, you know, these resources in order to basically kick back and have a place to kick back at and everything. I don't know. That would be fun. But this world has a tendency at directing. 
rather than producing. Anyways, I'm done for tonight. Thank you for listening.